okay, I, I can't let this go. Uh, during that I'm still standing video, I'm back there and I'm, I'm looking out at you all. You are laughing at the pain and suffering of other people. What kind of a church are we? Not one of you was praying. I looked. Not one of you was praying for them. I don't know what it says about me, but I could watch those videos all day long and still laugh. I grew up around the Christian faith. My mom was a strong follower of Jesus, and from the time that I was a young boy, she took me to church with her. And I enjoyed it. I, there was a, some kind of an attraction toward the things of God uh, in my heart. I loved learning things about God. But if I were to try to explain what was happening inside of me, I would just say it never quite connected. I just never really clicked for me. And this is what I believe happened. And I don't know how this happened, but somewhere along the way, I developed this picture of God. And in this picture of God that I had, he was angry he was frustrated, and he was very, very distant. Often the dis- and if I were to describe what he was thinking and what was his posture toward me as he was looking at me, he would just be looking at me shaking his head, frustrated, disappointed. I began to think about what is it like to know God for who he really, really is, a different picture of God. And kind of my strategy along this way, as I, as I pictured God as kind of distant, my strategy was that I'm just going to try to not draw a lot of attention to me. It's like, I know that God is powerful and he could bring the hammer on my life anytime that he wants, but I'm just going to try to not draw attention to myself. God, you do your thing and I'll do my thing. My hope was that I would just try my best my whole life and I would cross my fingers And that somehow he would curve the final at the end. That was my grand hope. My sophomore year of college, I meet this guy. And I'd met him before. We'd gone to orientation together. But at the beginning of our sophomore year, we're moving into the same apartment complex. And as I'm moving in, he strikes up a conversation with me. And I asked him what I thought was just a normal, normal question. What's new with you? He looks back at me and says, I became a Christian. Who says that? (laughs) Really, who says that? I I was kind of taken back a a little bit and and I just said, you know, well, well, I'm a Christian too. But it didn't take him very long, I think, of watching my life and how I live my life to say, I think he's missing something. So he initiated with me. He said, could we sit down sometime and talk about God, I was thinking, I probably have heard it all. In fact, if you've just become a Christian, I could probably teach you a thing or two. But I really liked him. So I said, absolutely, I would, I would sit down and meet with you. I can't remember everything that we talked about during that time with him that day in the student union building here at MSU, but what I do remember is one scripture that he shared that day because it started to take root in my life. And it was John 1.12. It just simply said this. It says, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That phrase, children of God, 
started to resonate in my heart and mind. It started to create this picture in my mind that maybe God isn't as distant and angry as I thought he was. It started this, developed this picture in my mind that made me think maybe God actually wants to have a relationship with me. Because that picture of a father and a child, it seemed like there was, there was intimacy in that. There was acceptance in that. And, I, and I'd heard people say my whole life, God loves you. But it never really hit me. Because I just thought, you know, I mean, he's God. That's kind of his job. That's, he just does that for everybody. But something started to happen that day where I started to think, I don't think God just loves people. I think he actually loves me. I think he wants me to come into that kind of father-child relationship with him. And you've got to understand, this is all happening in just a handful of moments around this meeting with my friend, but it is just grinding the gears of what I've always thought to be true about God. As I walked away from that meeting, just reeling, just thinking, God, is that true? Is that really true? I didn't even know how to express to God what was going on in my heart, but I just remember stopping in front of the library here at MSU and just kind of looking up to heaven because I just kind of imagined that that's where it was and God was looking down. All I said to him was, God, if you're like that, if you're really like that, I want to follow you. I want to follow you. And I would have even known it at the time, but that was a turning point in my life, looking back. It's not like everything in my life became perfect, far from it. But I can say the trajectory of my life changed that day. My life was never the same. And my life was changed because of a picture, a picture in my mind of who God really was. And this is what it leads me to wonder about. I think every one of our faith stories is different. Every one of us probably comes to faith in different ways, but I think that picture of who God is is incredibly important. Is God this angry, distant God, or is he a God that wants me to be in a relationship with him? Do I have the right picture of God? Friends, I just wanna say as boldly as I can, if your picture of God, when you think about who God is, if that primarily in you evokes fear and shame and judgment, I wanna say to you really boldly, you've got the wrong picture. And that picture of God is gonna keep him further away from you than you want him to be and certainly further away than he wants to be in your life. This series that we've been teaching on, The Kingdom is Like, we've been talking about what does it mean for us to live in to the kingdom of God with God as our king, the one who rules and reigns in our life. In the last couple of weeks, we've been specifically talking about what do we need to understand about the heart of the king in order to live in the kingdom. The last two weeks, we've been unpacking some parables that Jesus told in Luke chapter 15. And today we're looking at the third of three parables sometimes referred to as the parable of the prodigal son. And you've probably heard it said that a picture is worth a thousand words. 
I've already gone over a thousand words and you're gonna get more words from me. But what I want for you today is I want for you to leave here with a picture. I want you to leave with the right picture of who God is, the right picture of the heart of a king. And I've invited someone to help me with that, a picture that comes from scripture. My buddy Rembrandt painted this in the 17th century, the famous Dutch artist called The Return of the Prodigal. I want us to think about this picture as we unpack the text today. I want to introduce you to some of the main characters in this painting. Right here, we have the father, the center of the picture, the patriarch. The light is shining on him. Here we have the younger son, the broken, disheveled younger son in the embrace of the father. And over here, we have the older son, distant, aloof, not joining in in what's happening, not joining in the action. And then you'll notice that there's a handful of onlookers kind of in the backdrop. Friends, I want us to be one of those onlookers today. I want you to look at this painting as you hear the words from Jesus. And I want you to grab a picture, just one picture of who God is. But I want it to be an accurate picture as he's displayed in this story the prodigal son. Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 11. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. It's his third parable. He says, a man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. But no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home even the hired servants have food enough to spare. And here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. 
But his father said to his servants, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his fingers and sandals for his feet and kill the calf that we have been fattening. He must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead and now has returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house. And he asked one of the servants, what was going on? Your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fattened calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and he wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, all these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to do. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. The father said to him, look, dear son, you've always stayed by me and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. We're gonna look at this story. We're gonna look at the heart of the king. We're gonna find three things deeply embedded in the heart of the king. One is sadness, one is forgiveness, and one is a heart that is generous toward his lost sons. The story begins when the younger son goes to his father and he says, I want my inheritance, but I want my inheritance now. You've got to understand, this was an incredibly bold request. You don't ask for an inheritance when your father is still living. You divide the estate after, he was, after he's died. This was a request of deep disrespect. Many commentators say that to ask this kind of a question would be to say to the father, I wish you were dead. What the son is saying to the father is, I don't want you. I don't want your relationship. I just want your stuff. Dad, this relationship with you, it's just been a means to an end. I don't want you, but I want your stuff. Give me what is coming to me. Incredible disrespect. Now, when I was a kid, when I did things that were disrespectful or disobedient, my dad had this simple little move just to let me know that I was in trouble. He would just grab his belt, <laughs> simply to say, don't make me take this belt off. But there were times that he had to take his belt off. Yes, your pastor got spanked. The hearers of this story, as they heard the request of this young son, they're just saying, oh man, the father's gonna take off his belt. He's gonna get it, he's gonna get a whooping. You know what? He does get it, but he doesn't get a whooping. He gets the inheritance. 
The father actually says yes. He says yes to the request. The hearers are going, what in the world is going on? And the father, he knows his son. He knows the things that are in his heart. He's not thinking to himself, you know, I bet he's gonna just use that for some venture capital on some kind of a small business that's gonna create a lot of wealth for our family. He's probably gonna go to college. No, he knows what his son is gonna do. But at the same time, he gives it to him and he sends him off. He actually funds his disobedience. And as the father watches that son walk away with his inheritance, he's left with an ache in his heart, incredible sadness in his heart, tremendous loss of honor and respect, tremendous loss of personal wealth, but more than anything, the loss and the pain of rejected love. My son doesn't want me. He just wanted my stuff. And the worst thing of all is that his son's gone. His son's no longer with him and he chooses to bear that agony. But this story isn't just about one son that wanders from the father. There's another son that makes his heart sad as well. The older brother. Not the only lost son. There's the older brother. When the older brother hears what's going on, he shows up, he hears that there's a party going on and he asks the servants what's happening and they say, your younger son, your younger brother has shown up. He's not excited. In fact, he is outraged. And now it's his turn to disgrace the father. He disgraces the father by standing outside the party. He just crosses his arms and says, uh-uh. I'm not going in. I don't care how excited you are about that younger son. I'm not going in. I'm gonna stand out here and declare to everybody a vote of no confidence toward you, dad. I don't trust you. The older son, he's got his perspective. What has he experienced? The younger son took a third of the wealth that's how it would have been divided. The younger son got a third. The older son got two thirds. But the younger son took that third and he squandered it. He spent it on prostitutes and wild living. And now he comes back. And the older son is saying, really? Now that you're throwing this party? He already took his stuff. And now all this money that you're spending on him, that's my stuff. That's gonna be mine someday. It's just another way for this son to say to the father, I don't care about your heart. I don't care about what you're excited about. I just want your stuff. I don't want you. Again, breaking the heart of the father and forces him to go outside and do a humiliating thing. He has to leave the party as the host to invite his son back in. Two lost sons. Now, the people that are hearing this story, they would just say, those sons, they deserve anger and they deserve judgment. It would be absolutely appropriate and even expected that that's how the father would behave. If that's what he brought to his sons, no one would have even blinked. But he doesn't grab his belt. 
He doesn't grab his belt. In fact, he offers them something else. He offers them forgiveness. He offers both of them forgiveness. Now let's think about this younger son. He grabs his inheritance and he takes off, the text tells us, to a distant land. He wants to get as far away from the father as he can. And when he gets out there, he just throws away everything that the father had given him in wild living. But when he gets to the place where he's broke and a famine hits the land, he finds himself in the bottom of a pit. His fun is gone, his funds are gone, his future is gone as far as he knows. And he's in the bottom of this pit. And Jesus goes to great lengths to show everyone the depth of the pit that this young man is in. The job that he gets is feeding swine. If there could be anything that would be more humiliating to a Jewish man than to feed pigs, the Talmud says, cursed is the man who feeds the swine. So when Jesus talks about where this son is, he is below the swine because the swine have it better than him, have more to eat than he does. Jesus stretches the imagery within the culture to try to get us this picture of the depth of this pit. And while the sun is in the bottom of this pit, he starts to think about home. He remembers home. He is starving and he remembers his home was a place of generosity. Everybody ate. Everybody got fed. And he starts to think, could I ever go back home? I've gone so far. But he comes up with a plan. And here's his plan. I'm just gonna go home and I'm gonna throw myself at my father's feet. I will tell him, I have sinned against heaven and I've sinned against earth. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Would you just take me on as a slave? Could I please just be a slave in your home? That's his plan. And he takes his plan and he rehearses his speech and he starts walking home. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against earth. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Will you please allow me to just be a slave? Keeps rehearsing his speech as he moves toward home. Gets within eyesight of home and he sees a figure that seems familiar to him. It looks like his father, but something's wrong. His father's not just standing there. His father's actually coming at him. He's running to him. And he knows in his mind a patriarch. A Jewish patriarch would never do that. A Jewish patriarch would never lift up his robes and start running. How undistinguished of him. And the young son thinks, he's probably more angry than I thought. Maybe he's gonna grab his belt. So as he runs toward his father, moves toward his father, he drops down. And as his father gets to him, he starts reciting his speech. He wants to get it right. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father didn't let me get it out. He didn't even let me finish because he started screaming himself. He started screaming, quick. And he's yelling to his servants something about robes and rings and sandals and calves and parties. And he grabs me. He grabs me and he pulls me to my feet. 
He pulls me out of my, that pit and he pulled me to my feet. The father brought that young son incredible forgiveness. There's not a greater picture of the forgiveness of God than him reaching down and grabbing a hold of that son of his. What Jesus wants his audience to know that there is no sin, there is no wrongdoing, there is no pit for your life so deep that the grace of God, that the grace of the Father can't reach down to the bottom of that and pull you up. He just says there's a pit and there's a pardon and they're infinitely apart, but God does it because he loves us. And this is my favorite part. The Father He's pouncing. He's pouncing on his son. He didn't wait for his son to clean up his life. He has no idea what is in the heart of his son. He didn't wait for him to have evidence of a heart change before he grabbed a hold of him. For crying out loud, he doesn't even let him get his little repentance speech out before he starts calling a party. Even the humble contrition of the younger son is not enough to earn the father's love. He gives it. And Jesus would want everyone that hears this story to say God's forgiveness. The father's forgiveness, his acceptance, and his love, it can never be earned. It is absolutely free. It can never, never, never be earned. try telling that to this guy. That's not how he's thinking about it. He believes that it can be earned. He says, I did everything you told me to do. You said jump, I said how high. You made check boxes, I checked them all. I did everything that you asked me to do. Now I deserve mine. I've earned it, I deserve it. And he stays outside the party. What does the father do toward his rebellion, toward his wandering? He does the exact same thing. He humbles himself and he goes to this son and he invites him into the party. Come into the party. Be a part of this with us. Know my heart. Be about the things that I'm about. But this son says no. The father begs him to come in and he says, no. The father's saying, please, please, would you lay down your pride? Would you lay down your sense of entitlement? And would you just come in and join the feast? Another picture of incredible forgiveness offered by the father. Forgiveness to the younger son. Forgiveness to the older son. But only one of them comes to the party and experiences the third thing that's in the heart of the father, and that's generosity. His heart is generous. What was the younger son hoping for? What were, what were his dreams as he was coming back to the house? If I could get everything that I wanted, what would I get? Snacks and slavery. That's all the more that the bar was for him. But when the father grabs him, what does he get? 
He gets a celebration and he gets sonship. This incredible, lavish generosity poured out to him from the father. Father gives him a new robe, gives him a new ring, gives him some new Reeboks, shoes for his feet, generosity poured out to him. The robe. The father says, quick, get the best robe that we have in the house. Who had the best robe in the house? The father. The father had the best robe in the house. And in his great generosity, he takes one of his robes and he puts it over his son. And he says, I'll cover you with my robe. I'll cover your poverty. I'll cover your nakedness. I'll cover your neediness with who I am, my righteousness. That's the invitation, the generous invitation of the father. Not just coming back to the house, but coming back in a place of honor. He didn't wait for the young son to pay off his debt. He didn't wait until he had adequately groveled. You can't earn your way back in to the family. But the father says, I wanna honor you. I wanna honor you with the biggest party you have ever seen. Jesus, again, is stretching the imagery of his culture to understand, so his hearers would understand the magnitude of the generosity of God. Question I have for us, who's the prodigal in this story? Maybe even a, a better question than that is, what does prodigal even mean? Do we know what prodigal means? Here's just the Webster's definition of prodigal. It means spending money or resources freely and recklessly, wastefully extravagant, having or giving something on a lavish scale. The son's not the prodigal in this story. God's the prodigal in this story. He's got love and he's got grace and he's got forgiveness and he is just throwing it away at the most undeserving of people. He is just dumping it out on the undeserving like there's an infinite amount to spare. Maybe there is. Maybe there is an infinite amount to spare. Maybe there's enough for you. Maybe there's enough for me. What is your picture of the Father? When you think about God, does this kind of a picture come to your mind? A picture marked with love and acceptance? Do you imagine him grabbing a hold of you, pulling your head to his chest so that you can hear his heartbeat? Him saying that you're my beloved? Is that the picture that you have? Or does your picture of God, was it like the one that I grew up with that primarily evokes fear and shame and judgment and distance? Is that your picture of God? I just gotta be really honest with you. If that's the primary picture that you have of God, you're not home yet. You're not home yet. The Father is inviting you to come home. The Father would say, come home to me. 
Stop running away from me. Stop trying to earn my love for you. Join the party because it's generous. There is enough for everyone. Is coming to the Father, is that the only point of this parable? That prodigals and religious people, we all learn how to come to the Father. I think that's a main point, but I think there's another point that we've got to grab a hold of. This parable is not just about us coming to the Father. This parable is also about us becoming the Father. One of the most challenging commands that Jesus ever gave was for us to think about how do we become the Father for others? This is how Luke said it in Luke chapter six. How Jesus said, how Luke recorded Jesus' words in Luke chapter six. Verse 35, Jesus says, love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to be repaid. Then your reward from heaven will be very great and you will truly be acting as children of the most high. For he is kind to those who are what? Unthankful and wicked. And Jesus says, this is what I want you to do. You must be compassionate just as your father is compassionate. We can't put these things together and look at this picture of the prodigal son without coming to the understanding that there is a great need for us to experience the love of the Father, the forgiveness of the Father, the acceptance of the Father, but that's not where it stops. This parable tells us we need to become the Father so that love and that acceptance and forgiveness, we would actually be a conduit of that to the world around us. It's not just about me experiencing God. It's about me helping others experience God as well. But here's the deal. Until we feel this, until we experience this, we will never be able to show it to others. That's why this picture is so important. And Journey, as a spiritual family, this picture needs to drive who we are as a church, that we would be people that would know in the depths of our heart that our primary identity is the beloved son. We know what it's like to be loved by him. And out of experiencing that, we give that to the world around us. Our mission statement is we lead people to radical love in action like Jesus. If we haven't experienced the radical love of Jesus, we'll never be able to give it to others. I want to read something that John wrote in 1 John. And he's the best person to write this and explain what I've just been trying to explain to us here. Because John, several times in the scriptures, when he identifies himself, you know what he calls himself? He calls himself the disciple that Jesus loved. And it wasn't because he thought he was so great, but it was because he understood this. He experienced this. He knew what it was like to experience the love of the Father. And here's what John says. 1 John 4, starting in verse 16. We know, we know how much God loves us. And we have put our trust in his love. 
We put our trust in what God has done for us. We don't put our trust in what we've done for him. And John continues, and God is love. And all who live in love live in God. And God lives in them. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment, but we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in this world. Such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. If we are afraid, it is for fear of punishment. And this shows that we have not fully experienced his perfect love. I love how John says this. And we love each other because he first loved us. The reason that we're able to extend radical love to the world around us is because we know what it's like to be loved by him. We've experienced what it's like to feel that robe put over our shoulders. Not that we earned, but that the father gave us. And to watch him cover our nakedness, cover our shame, cover our poverty. And to give us a righteousness and a standing that didn't belong to us. It belonged to Christ, but the father gives it to us. We know what it's like to feel that signet ring slipped on to our finger with the family crest on it, reminding this is my family. I belong to the father. I belong to this family. Those who have experienced that, the robe and the ring are the ones that can extend it to the world. It's not just about us coming to the father. It's about us becoming the father. Let's pray. Jesus, I'm just so aware right now that there could be so many different pictures in people's hearts and minds about what God is like. God, I pray by the power of your spirit that in the deepest places of all of my friends here, the deepest places of their heart would be a right and true picture of you that that picture would be shaped not by our experience, not by the world around us, and not by the enemy, but that picture would be shaped by the truth of your word. Jesus, thank you for telling this story. Thank you that we know that we can come home. There's no pit too deep that the Father can't bring a pardon. Bring us home. Jesus, I pray that we wouldn't just experience you, but we would be those carriers of your kingdom, carriers of your love to the world around us, that the lavish and extravagant and the prodigal love that we've experienced from you, we would just start throwing it around to the world around us. God, use us to bring the glory of your kingdom to the Gallatin Valley and beyond. We're so grateful to be your kids. Jesus, it's in your powerful and risen name that we pray. Amen. 
Thanks for listening. We hope this time has allowed you to dig out more of who God has made you to be. If you made some kind of spiritual decision today and are interested in what's next, we'd love to connect with you. For more information or to get in touch, please visit journeyweb.net. If you're interested in supporting our ministry, you can give online at journeyweb.net slash give. Thanks.